Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, before working at Christ Community Church, all of my ministry jobs were with either high school or college students, sometimes young 20s. And a lot of times I'm very curious about where students I've had in the past ended up, what they're doing uh, now. And sometimes I'm a little bit nervous to find out what they're doing as well. But a number of them are doing some pretty interesting things. Uh, One of them is a competitive swing dancer. Uh, Another is on a year-long road trip in a Volkswagen van, believe it or not, to the tip of South America and back. Apparently, you can actually drive this most of the way, uh, so she's doing that. Uh, One of them swam the English Channel, other cool things like that. Love to hear those sorts of things. Most of what I would like to hear is how they're doing spiritually. Uh, And sometimes this is incredibly encouraging. I think of some of the guys that were in the first small group I ever led who are now uh, starting families, invested in their churches, uh, shining a light in their workplaces, doing incredible stuff. But other times, it's heartbreaking. I think in particular of a student leader, one of the most committed to Christ that I knew, passionate about her faith. And 10 years later, she's no longer following Jesus. The studies say that 40 to 50% of students who are following Jesus in high school, participating in local churches, walk away from their faith in their 20s. Now, some of them come back, but many do not. And so here's the question I want to ask. Is there anything that we can do as Christ Community Church to change those statistics for the students and kids who grew up in our church? That's what we're talking about this week. For the next three weeks, we are doing a series called Have a Heart. As a church, we have a mission statement. It's our way of summarizing the assignment we believe God has given to us. It is the driving goal, the heartbeat behind everything that we do. Uh, I'd like us to actually read that mission statement together. So I'm going to put it up here on the screen, all of us with one voice. Our mission is to make passionate disciples of Jesus Christ who are belonging, growing, serving, and reaching. Those four qualities, belonging, growing, serving, and reaching, are the litmus test for everything that we do. We are always asking the question, how well does this activity help people grow in one of those four areas? And this year, we're giving some extra attention to that third quality, the quality of serving. We have declared this year the year of the volunteer, and we are urging everyone who calls Christ Community home to find a place to serve. The reason serving is so important is because this is the way God made us to thrive. This is how human beings work best. We do not work best when we are turned in on ourselves. We work best when we are giving ourselves away. That's what it means to flourish as a human being. And the reason that's true about humans is because this is what God is like. God is not turned in on himself. He is a self-giving God and he always has been. Before the beginning of the world, this is what God was doing. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were loving each other, giving themselves away to each other. When God made the world, he decided this is how he's going to relate to his creatures. He's going to be the God who gives and blesses and serves and pours out his goodness and his grace and his love and his holiness into the creatures that he has made. God is a giving, serving, outward-focused God. And so the people that he made in his image, we thrive best when we are serving. That's the reason why as a church we are passionate about helping people find places where they can give and serve. So here's the big question though. How do you figure out, out of all of the options of places where you could be serving, where's the place for you? Uh, One way to think this through is to think through three kind of overlapping areas. Gifts, 
needs, and passions. Gifts, needs, and passions. Your gifts are those God-given abilities that you have. If you have a knack for something, odds are God wants you to use that to serve somebody. Needs are the situations around us. When you look around it, and whether, whether you want to or not, it demands to be done. There are people who are hurting. There are tasks that need to be accomplished. There are situations that need to be addressed, the needs. But passions, passions are the things that stir your heart. They're the things you can't stop thinking about. When you read scripture, they're the topics and the themes that just leap off the page. You understand why God's heart beats for those things because your heart beats for them as well. And when you're figuring out where you wanna serve, finding something that, that fits in at least one of those categories is essential. If you are doing something that nobody needs, that you don't care about and you're not very good at, you should find something else to do. The goal though is to find something that's at least in two or three of those categories. In this series, we are focusing on that third circle, the circle of passion. What is it that your heart beats for? God gives different people different passions. And our hope is that over the course of the next three weeks, each one of us would prayerfully, seriously ask the question, God, who have you given me a heart for? And then when you've answered that question to say, God, how can I take a step to serve that community or get invested in that issue? To help with that, the next three weeks, we are actually going to be looking at three examples of people that we believe God has a heart for. And we want to ask the question, if God loves these groups of people, how can we love them as well? The group for today is the next generation. The next generation. When we talk about that around here, we are referring both to children and to students. And the passage we're going to be looking at today is in Matthew chapter 19. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 19. Uh, it's the first book in the New Testament, one of the biographies of Jesus. And the story we're going to be reading is a very famous one, one you may have seen uh, paintings or sculptures of. It's the story of Jesus welcoming the children. So let's start reading in Matthew 19, verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Let me point something out. I just read to you from the Bible, which is God's word. And that means that of all of the words that we sing and say today, these are the most important words you are going to hear. They're words that we need to believe and obey and thank God for. So let's do that right now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For our outline today, we are just going to follow the phrases, uh, the three phrases in Jesus' words here. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom belongs to such as these. Because these three phrases tell us three things we need to offer to the next generation. Here's the first one. When Jesus says, let the children come to me, it means we need to offer the next generation a warm invitation. A warm invitation. Uh, every time I read this passage, I cannot help but think, man, those disciples are cold-hearted jerks. Like these families, they're like, hey, we just want Jesus to pray for our kids. And they're like, go away. He's too busy. You know, it's like, like the Grinch or something. It's like, what are you doing? Like, of course they can come to Jesus. But you got to put yourself in their mindset, okay? Think about what they understand about Jesus. They believe he's the Messiah. That means he's the rightful king of Israel and the rightful king of the nations. And so they're looking at him and saying, he's royalty, he's the king of the world. Now, when we see pictures of world leaders, presidents, government officials, and they're interacting with a kid, we love that, right? It's a great photo op, it's cute, it's, it's, it humanizes them and all of that. But if you had a group of you know, parents who showed up at the White House or some other you know, world leader's home and said, hey, we want the president to meet with our kids, you would not be surprised 
And you would not be offended when their people said, no, you cannot meet with them. They're busy. They've got other things going on. When we read this story, we are not supposed to be shocked at how cold-hearted the disciples are. We're supposed to be shocked at how warm-hearted Jesus is. It's natural for us to think that God is open and accessible and welcoming. It's natural for us to assume that children are precious and valuable. But the reason we think both of those things is because of stories like this one. The idea of God as open and inviting and the idea of children as uniquely valuable as full-fledged human beings, those ideas come from Christianity. The reason they are assumed in our society is because of centuries of influence of the teaching of Jesus. It was not like that in the ancient world. Jesus is doing something profound here by offering a warm welcome to children. Jesus so identifies with kids that in the previous chapter in Matthew 18, 5, he says this, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Jesus welcomes the next generation, which is why we need to as well. The reason he welcomes the next generation is something that should be obvious, but we often forget. And it's this, children can have a real relationship with God. Children can have a real relationship with God. I think I first, you know, this kind of hit home for me when I volunteered in the third grade classroom in my old church. I was in grad school and I thought, you know, I should not spend all my time in the books. I should, you know, get, you know, hang out with kids, tell simple stories and do that sort of thing. And I don't know if I would have said this out loud, but I, I sort of, in some part of my mind thought, you know what, the reason we do this on Sunday mornings is so that all of the parents of these kids can go to the worship service and do the real business of church there and we'll keep these kids occupied. And I knew we were doing something good, you know, we're telling them stories and teaching them lessons and all sorts of stuff, but I sort of thought of it as like uh, something that they would need in the future. Not something that was really important for them now, but kind of an investment for a future spiritual life they might have one day when they, you know, take ownership of their faith. I sort of thought of it as like why we teach kids math. Like, you know, kids don't need to use math very often in their day-to-day life, but we know it's going to be important later on, so we make sure they learn it now. That's sort of how I was thinking about all these stories. But then I started talking to kids. (laughs) And I started asking them about God. I started hearing them pray real prayers. And I started hearing them ask questions about God that to them were so important and came from a heart that really wanted to know. I heard them wrestle with their own behavior about the temptation to do what is wrong and the difficulty of doing what's right. And I actually saw them worship out of hearts of love for God. This is the reason why around here, the mission statement of our children's ministry is the same mission statement as our church to make passionate disciples of Jesus Christ who are belonging, growing, serving, and reaching. Because we believe that kids can have real meaningful relationships with God right now. It's not about making them disciples in the future, it's about helping them be disciples even now as kids. For adults here at Christ Community, the two most important environments that we have are weekend services and community groups. If if you want to grow and belong at our church, those are two things you've got to do frequently, consistently. And so that's what we provide for adults. But you know what we provide for kids? The exact same thing. On the weekends, this is the experience they get. A, a, A large group worship experience and a small group experience. And these times are designed to get kids interacting with God and his word. The the times I've been down in Kids World during their worship time, it has been amazing uh, to see them raising their hands, singing with their hearts to God. Uh, After a a message, a lesson from scripture, the kids actually have a chance to respond to what they've heard. There are these stations all around the room where kids can go and they can choose what they wanna do to interact more with the story, interact more with God. There are stations where they can go and they can read the Bible story for themselves or have someone read it to them. 
They can go and draw a picture in response or write in a journal. There, there are stations where they can actually write down prayers, roll them up, and kind of put them in little holes in the wall. Our, our Kids World staff will sometimes look through these prayers to see the sorts of things that are on kids' minds. And I, I want to actually share with you some of the things that they found written there. Some of these are pretty amazing. How about this one? I love God from my head to my toes is. It's wonderful. God, thank you for my bed and my food. Now, I, those are two things I am incredibly thankful for. God, help me be strong, true, and faithful. How about this one? God, one girl in my class is mean to everyone and not many people are nice to her, so I'm gonna be nice back. Have you ever prayed about someone who, who is in your life who is difficult to relate to? Kids do as well. God, help my kneecaps heal. Hopefully God has answered that prayer. God is sweeter than cupcakes and ice cream. Amen, amen. Thank you, God, for forgiving my stupid and bad sins. How many times have I prayed that one? Oh my goodness. All right, this is one of my favorites. God, is there a McDonald's in heaven? And they wrote the answer, no, there is not because you don't need to survive on food in heaven. Okay, little budding theologian trying to put things together there. God, thank you for helping me overcome my seizure. God, thank you for allowing me to shine. God, thank you for letting me find $154. Now, I really want to know the backstory to that one. Like, I, I, the only thing I can imagine is that they were out like with their family at a restaurant or something and they saw like the tip jar and just yoink, like where are you gonna find $154? <laughs> Good question for, from this other kid. God, do you love Satan like the Bible says, love your enemies? That's a good question. God, thanks for answering my prayers about the boy calling me names and hearing me when I cry about things. Go, Jesus. God, my friend doesn't go to church and she should go, so I'm gonna invite her. God, I confess for lying. God, I'm sorry for sneaking M&Ms. <laughs> God, you are always so great. You always know what's good for us. Keep being a powerful God all throughout my life. And then this one is, is the most important one here. Dear God, I asked for a puppy and my dad is saying no right now. I ask that you can change that. Amen. <laughs> so if there's a father out there who recently bought a puppy for their kid, like changed your mind, it's because God hears the prayers of children. <laughs> now these are first through fifth graders. But can't you relate to most of what they said, even though it's in kid language or some of it's, you know, these adorable things, from the heart of where it's coming from, you say, these are the sorts of things that are on my mind too. And some people will hear that and they'll say, well, yeah, that, that's really cute and all, but aren't they just mimicking their parents or the adults in their life? That's not really their faith. And that, that's partially true. They, they're certainly following the example of adults in their life, but that doesn't mean it's not really their faith. It doesn't mean it's not, it's not genuine. It's just like eating a meal. One day, each of these kids, hopefully, is going to learn to cook for themselves. But for now, most of the food they eat is prepared for them by an adult. But that doesn't mean it's not real food. It doesn't mean it's less nourishing. It doesn't mean it's less enjoyable for them. It doesn't mean it's less their food. Childhood faith is typically guided and prompted by adults. But one day, when those children own their faith, it's not going to be the first time they ever interact with God. It doesn't make it less real right now. When you interact with a kid, you've got to remember this. Their minds are full of thoughts just like yours. Their hearts are full of desires and emotions just like yours. 
Their lives are full of decisions and dilemmas just like yours. They, they have relationships and responsibilities, joys and sorrows, hopes and fears. They have enthusiasm and insecurity. They have faith and they have failures. They have a real spiritual life right now. And that's why Jesus extends a warm welcome to children just as he does to adults. Now, what does it look like to extend a warm welcome, not just to the little kids, but to teenagers, to students, junior hires, and high schoolers? Here at Christ Community Church, we believe that students are full participants in the life of the church. Students are full participants in the life of the church. When I was 13 years old, a pastor approached me and said, hey, Clayton, we're having a, a, a little prayer thing here. Would you be willing to lead the prayer? I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. A few months later, he came to me and he said, you know, I'm, I got to set up for an event that's coming up. Would you help me set up before the event? So I helped set up before the event. And, and then one time he said, hey, we need some people to uh, welcome people to, as they're coming into the church, would you be willing to be a greeter for this? And I said, okay, I'll do that. And before long, I was doing all sorts of other things. I was playing my guitar in the student band. I was visiting shut-ins at a nursing home. I was teaching a Bible study to little kids at a neighborhood Bible club. I was, uh, I was doing all sorts of things in and around the church. And this changed how I saw my church. It became not just my parents' church. It became my church. It gave me a glimpse both into what God can do through churches. It made me realize that God is at work in this community but it also made me realize that God could do things through me in particular. Doing those things connected me with other people in the church so that as I served, the people that I was in worship with, it was no longer just a random adult down the road that I didn't know who they were. It was someone who felt like an aunt or a brother or a grandparent or a cousin. It became family to me. Students, I, I wanna challenge you and encourage you in this. This is your church. Do not wait around, don't just observe. If you aren't already doing so, Start serving, start connecting in other places. We, we have students who serve in almost every area of our church, from kids' world to creative arts to being ushers and greeters all the way. But don't let church feel like a place where you're a guest, where you're just tagging along with your parents. Make this your church. In fact, I'd, make, I'd encourage you to make it official. Become a member of our church. Did, did you know that membership is open to anyone sixth grade and older? I would love at all of our Begin to Belong class, classes at each of our campuses this month, that those classes would be full of students. That would be amazing. That on Vision Weekend, when the members stand up, that there, there are hundreds of students standing up and declaring that this is our church. It, it would be a statement that you are not the future of our church, you are the present of our church. You matter now. Let, let me address the adults here. Uh, this week, I was driving behind a car that had a bumper sticker that said, start seeing motorcycles. You ever see those? Okay. I think we should have signs that say, start seeing students, because they're everywhere, okay? See them in the lobby. See them in your zone when you're hanging out before or after the service. See them as you serve alongside them with, in Kids World and Cup of Joy, Creative Arts. Then when you see students, simply be friendly with them, okay? Don't be a weirdo, uh, but engage with teenagers just the way you would anybody else, okay? Talk to them about their life. Ask them about their week. Ask them about school, the activities that they're in, what they do for fun. It was students that you see frequently, ask them about more significant things. Ask them about their friends and their family, their relationships. Ask them if they have needs that you could pray for. Do the same thing you would do with an adult in the church with them. Just talk to them. Now, there are lots of students who act weird around adults, but I'm convinced that most of the time, that's because adults act weird around students, okay? Students, you need to do your part as well. 
Okay, be the sort of person who declares to the, the, the adults around you, even in your body language, that you'd like to talk with them. Give eye contact, put your phone in your pocket. Part of having adults who care for you, who invest in you, love you, mentor you, is making your eyes and your ears ready, sending out signals that you wanna engage with them, not saying, oh, I'm uncomfortable and I don't wanna interact. All the research about whether or not a young person follows Jesus when they're an adult the main conclusion that people have come to is basically this. The more adult Christ followers in a kid's life, the more likely that kid is to follow Jesus as an adult. It basically comes down to that. The students who have the best shot of sticking with their faith have at least five adults in their life who are not their parents, who love Jesus and are invested in them. The reason that is so important is this. One, it obviously offers just more support for people, and that's just good. But it also gives a deeper sense of belonging and connection and it also gives multiple examples of how to live out faith. If a kid only sees their parents living out their faith, they think that's the only way to do it. But if they see multiple adults saying, hey, this is how my faith works out in different kinds of life, they say, hey, maybe that could work for me as well. Here's the question for all of us. Do you wanna be one of those five people for a kid or a student in our church? If you do, we have all sorts of ways to get you connected to the next generation. Here are two ways to learn about those opportunities. First one is this. Text this number on the screen, the, the word next gen to that number. We will get in touch with you with all sorts of opportunities, get you the information about what the options are. Or today, you can walk out of the service at the end and you can go and meet with our Kids World and Student Ministry staff at all four of our campuses and they will help you get connected. Let's be a church that offers the next generation a warm welcome. Here's the second thing we've got to offer the next generation. Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. This is the flip side of the first command. On the positive side, we've got to welcome in young people, but then we also have to do our best to clear out everything that might make it harder for them to approach Jesus. We need to offer the next generation an unhindered path, an unhindered path. There are so many hindrances that get in the way of the next generation walking with Jesus for a lifetime. I want to just identify five of those. Here's the first one. The hindrance of hypocrisy. The hindrance of hypocrisy. It is really hard to believe that something is true when the person who is telling you it is fake. That your pastors say one thing and then they do another thing. Your friends worship passionately at church and then they talk about you behind your back at school. Your, your parents put on a happy, wholesome front on the weekend, but during the week you can see that their faith is just a show. It doesn't make a difference in their day-to-day -day life. If the next generation is gonna follow Jesus, they have to see that it is real in the lives of the adults that they, they know and see. Parents, the most important thing you can do to build faith into your kids is to build faith into yourself. Become what you wanna see in your children. Be in God's word, be present and engaged in worship in a way that they can see. Be praying, be in a community of Christ followers and then just let it leak. Make, make it real in your life and then just let it come out. It doesn't even have to be forced. You just mention something that you prayed about. You, you just say something that you thought was interesting in the Bible that you read. You, you go home from church and you say, you know what? There's just a moment in the service that really touched me. I felt like God was there. It was really cool. And don't just let your kids see your spiritual successes. Let them see that it is real even when you fail. That means that you're gonna have to do a lot of apologizing when you're wrong. Let them see that you confess sin too. It means initiating reconciliation when you get into conflict with them. It means that your main emphasis is not about following the rules. The main emphasis is on how you lean on Jesus, whether you follow the rules well or not. 
The best way to undermine hypocrisy is not by being perfect. The way to undermine hypocrisy is by admitting that you are wrong when you fail. Show them that you live by grace and not by performance and remove the hindrance of hypocrisy. Second hindrance, the hindrance of busyness, busyness. Today's students, according to people who research these things, are the busiest, most stressed out generation that has ever lived. Uh, A recent study showed that 13 to 17 year olds olds are more likely to report feeling extreme stress than adults are. And and the adults in their lives don't even realize it's going on. 20% of teenagers confess that they worry a great deal about their life. They have a high level of anxiety. But of the parents of that 20% of teenagers, only 8% of their parents realize that their kids are stressed. That means that for every 12 kids who feel stressed out, only one of them has parents that realize it's going on. There are 11 whose parents have no idea. The the stress in large part comes from the busyness of this generation, especially in middle and upper class areas like ours. Let me read to you a description from a, a book that I recently read about this. By high school, many teenagers juggle digital calendars jammed with extracurricular activities that begin as early as 6 a.m. After school study sessions, college entrance exam tutoring, sports team practices that leave them trailing home after 10 p.m., followed by two or three hours of homework. Athletes used to specialize in a single sport in high school. Now that starts in elementary school. Previously, musicians and artists could freely dabble in various media and instruments throughout high school, Present-day teenagers have to claim their craft in middle school. No longer can a kid flirt with a handful of hobbies, discovering various facets of their personality and passions before choosing what they love. But why does this happen? Most of the pressure comes from the adults in these kids' lives, from parents and teachers and coaches and even advertisers for all of these activities. And when we do these things, we think we are being a service to them. But that same book goes on to say, it says, we have evolved to the point where we believe that driving is support, being active is love, and providing any and every opportunity is selfless nurture. The the problem with the busyness is not just the stress it causes, it's the priorities it communicates. Uh, My wife was a teacher at Bartlett High School for seven years, and she would hear a lot from students who used to go to church and didn't anymore. And the reason they would stop going to church, they they went as as kids but not as teenagers, the reason they stopped wasn't because they weren't interested in God or curious about those sorts of things. The reason was because as their family schedules got busier and busier and busier, and their parents had to make decisions about what was going to be prioritized, their parents would consistently insist, you got to be at practice, you got to be at the game, you got to do your homework. But when push comes to shove, the thing that can be set aside was church. And so they they realized it wasn't that they weren't curious about that or interested. They just realized my parents are communicating to me that what really matters in life is that I'm successful in these areas, not that I have a strong relationship with God and his people. And so they just drifted away. I think one of the ways that Christian families can be refreshingly countercultural is by fighting to have our kids be intentionally underscheduled, to be intentionally underscheduled. Let's deliberately do less so that the next generation has breathing room to draw near to God, to build relationships with followers of Jesus and people in the community, to to learn that performance is not what defines you, but Jesus is what defines you. Another hindrance that we need to address is doubt, doubt. Uh, I recently heard a story about a young man named Steve. He's a sharp guy, thought deeply about things, and after a church service, he went to his pastor and he asked him, he said, Pastor, if, if I raise my finger does God know which finger I'm gonna raise before I do it? 
And the pastor, pastor answered, well, yes, of course he does. God knows everything. Steve then pulled out a magazine and it had a picture of two starving children on it who were suffering from a famine. And he said, well, does God know about this? And does he know what's going to happen to these kids? And the pastor said, I, I know you're probably not going to understand this, but yes, God knows all about that. And that was the extent of the answer that he got. And Steve was not satisfied with that answer. And so he walked away and he never worshiped in a Christian church for the rest of his life. You may actually have heard of this kid. There's a picture of him. His name is Steve Jobs. And that's the reason why he didn't follow Jesus out of childhood. It is natural, actually good, for young people, for all people, to have questions about their faith. This is part of the process of owning a mature faith, is figuring out all those hard questions. But when those questions become a hindrance, it's when they're asked, but there's no one there to walk with someone as they wrestle with them. We, we often think of doubt as something that happens later in life when you're a high school or a college student or an, uh, an adult, you start to have doubts. But it turns out doubts actually start fairly early in a kid's life. Uh, again, my wife was a, a teacher at Bartlett High School and she was a creative writing teacher. And every day she would offer a writing prompt to her students about something, all sorts of different areas of life. And one that she would use every year is, what's your experience of faith growing up and what do you believe right now? And they could free write about anything they wanted. And in those responses, she saw a consistent pattern. There were kids who, these were teenagers, but they were writing about their childhood. Something that would happen in kind of middle elementary school when they're nine, 10 years old. Something hard, something sad. Maybe it was a, a sickness. Maybe it was a death in the family, but something that raised a bunch of questions for them. And they would have these questions about, is God good? Why didn't he answer my prayer? What happens when you die? Very, very heavy things. And they would go to an adult and either the adult wouldn't understand that they were wrestling with a big question or the adult would try to quickly settle the question and, and not wrestle with them about it. And that experience planted the seed that later on led those students to say, well, I guess people don't know the answer to this question or maybe God isn't good or I, uh, you know, he wasn't there for me. The question though, it was not the problem. Those are the right questions to be asking when you have that experience. The problem is when a young person feels that they can't express their doubts, express their questions, or when they do, there's no one there to wrestle with them. This is especially true right now in our culture with questions of sexuality and gender. When a student is wrestling with their own sexuality or how to relate to their gay and transgender friends or how to think about bigger issues in the culture, but it applies to every question about God or faith. How does God relate to science and suffering and other religions and all of these things? And when adults hear that, sometimes they get nervous. They don't know how to answer those questions for themselves. And so they, they're just anxious about what that's going to do for a kid. So they just try to, you know, quiet it down real quickly. But these are questions that take time. You've got to process them. And when a young person feels like an adult is being impatient or shutting down the conversation, they're going to find another place to go. They're gonna keep wrestling and they're gonna do it with their friends or they're gonna look online or they're gonna find some other adult who will talk to them. When young people express doubts, our goal should not be to quickly settle the issue. Our goal should be to stay in the conversation as long as that kid needs it. That means that when we don't know what the answer is, we've gotta get really good at saying, I don't know, but I'd like to figure it out with you. Students, I wanna address you directly about this. I know that you are asking the big questions and you are wrestling with doubts and that is a good thing. It is how your faith grows, it's how it matures, it's how you own a tested and tried thinking kind of faith that you can say, I really believe this. And so as one of your pastors, I wanna give you permission 
you can express those questions and doubts to us. We want to hear them. And we are going to do our best. We're not always going to be perfect, but we're going to do our best to be patient with you and walk with you to help you find understanding and answers and ways to approach those questions. We are not afraid of the hindrance of doubt. Another hindrance we need to watch out for is this. The hindrance of technology. Now, this is a hard one because there is no way for me to talk about this without sounding like the curmudgeonly old man talking about kids and their gadgets these days or whatever, okay? So I I understand that it's gonna come across that way, but I gotta say it anyway. Here's the reality. The fact that kids and students are getting their own phones and other devices starting in early elementary school is an incredible challenge for them drawing near to Jesus. Think think about this. This is true for all of us, okay? We all have to deal with technology. But think about the way this kind of technology forms people. It used to be that a student, when they came home from school, was getting a break from all of the social pressure they experienced there. It, It might still have been hard, but they could come to a place where they weren't having to interact with their friends and the people around them all the time. But that is not true anymore. If you've got a phone, it's 24-7. It used to be that you could just enjoy moments in life. You could just be yourself and not be self-conscious about it. But now with a phone, you're always thinking, well, how can I capture this? How can I share this? How can I use this moment to manage my public image? It used to be that you had to experience boredom or deal with awkward conversations or be alone with your thoughts, but no longer. We always have distractions. And parents, I'm gonna say this one very bluntly. If you give your kid an unmonitored, an unmonitored device that does not have strong parental protections, you are handing your kid a pornography addiction. 70% of men and 50% of women under the age of 25, that includes students, view pornography at least once a month. I'm not saying that you cannot use uh, technology. I'm saying that we cannot be lazy about our use of technology. I've got a smartphone, but we've got to be smart about it. For the sake of our spiritual lives and for the sake of the spiritual lives of young people that we care about, we've got to figure out how to use it well. Now, I wish I could say more about this and talk about really practical things here, but I can't. I don't have time. I'm simply going to recommend a book. It's a book called The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. And if you are a parent, this is a must read. It's a must read. If you are not a parent, I would still strongly recommend it. It is talking about family things, but this is still one of the wisest books about the use of personal technology I have ever read. Do not let technology be a hindrance. One last hindrance that I need to address, and this is the the saddest one, is the hindrance of abuse. The, The hard reality is that out of any group of people in all of history, there is no group that has suffered the effects of evil more than children. Children are by definition vulnerable. They are at the mercy of people more powerful than themselves, their parents and other caretakers. They are limited in how they can defend themselves. And unless someone speaks for them, they usually don't have a voice. This is why as a church, we take our responsibility to protect our children very, very seriously. Every person who works in kids world has, or in student ministries has a background check. We, we look into their past. We have a very rigorous security system for checking in and out kids. Uh, When I go and check my daughter out of her classroom, the woman who checks us out is in my community group, okay? I'm her pastor. We're in the same group. We know each other. She knows my kid. And still, she makes me read the number, then she reads her number, and then she lets us out the room, okay? Kate, that is ridiculous, (laughs) but thank you. Thank you. 
I'm serious. I'm glad she does that every single time because I don't want anybody to be lax about any security when it comes to the kids. No adult is ever allowed to be alone with a child. Uh, When children are taken to the bathroom, there are always two unrelated volunteers together who stand outside the bathroom. Uh, During the the service, people aren't allowed to just wander into Kids World unless they're a parent or a Kids World volunteer. Uh, We have similar but different procedures in, in place for student ministry events. We are very, very careful about this. And the reason we are is because Jesus warns us. In the chapter right before us, he says this, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus cares about this. I also want to say this. If you are in a situation where someone is hurting you, harming you in some way, you do not have to stay in that situation. You you can get help. Please talk to someone. You can tell a staff person here at church. You can call us up during the week. If you're a student, you can talk to a teacher or counselor at school. If you need to, you can call the police. But get help. God loves you. He does not want you to stay in an abusive situation. Let's look at the final phrase in our verse here. Jesus says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. We don't just offer a warm welcome and an unhindered path. Ultimately, what we offer is a kingdom hope, a kingdom hope. You know why we invest so much in the next generation? It is not because they are the future of our church or the future of the nation. It is because they are the future of the universe. They're the future of the universe. I mean that in all seriousness. This is the truth about you and every single person you have ever encountered. From the baby in her mother's womb to the teenager down the row from you to your grandfather in a nursing home. We are made for eternity. We are made for eternity. There is an everlasting kingdom coming. And the question you've got to ask is, who is significant? What is significant in that kingdom? And what Jesus says is is counterintuitive. It is not the people you might think are going to matter. You don't have to be impressive or powerful or accomplished in the kingdom. The opposite, in fact, Jesus is giving away the kingdom to the vulnerable and the weak and the overlooked. Jesus will give the kingdom even to children when they come to him. I I love the baptism services around here. They are the happiest things I ever get to witness. Uh, Around here, we don't baptize infants or real young children. uh, But when a child is old enough that we can be confident that they understand what Jesus did, and they can express a commitment to Jesus, we will baptize them, usually starting around fourth grade, nine or ten years old. And baptism is one of the most glorious things that can happen to someone. It's a symbol uh, of union with Jesus, that his death is for you and your old life has died, and that you are raised with Christ and you have a new life in him. And because of this, it's a sign, not just of something that's happened in someone's present, it's also a sign of what's going to happen to them in the future. That person will one day be raised from the dead. And the scriptures tell us that when that happens, they will reign with Christ. They will reign with Christ. Because they are united to Jesus, they will share in his rule over the new heavens and the new earth. In some ways, every baptism is a coronation. So when you see a 10-year-old coming up out of the water, this is what I do. I try to imagine with the eyes of faith what they will look like on the day of their resurrection, the day when they take their place as one of the kings or queens of the universe. Because when they come out of that tank right now, they're just like a soaked kid in an oversized blue t-shirt. They're just dripping all over the stage. But one day, on the last day, they will be royalty. 
They will be clothed in the glory and honor and authority of Jesus. This is how you should live here and now. You should ask the question, in a billion years, who is going to matter in the kingdom? And then orient your lives around those people. Investing in the life of a kid or a student is an investment in eternity. The four-year-olds that you're trying to corral just to sit still long enough to hear a story. The, the sophomore in your house group that just wants to talk about her new boyfriend. The kid with special needs that you are a buddy for week after week. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. God has a heart for the next generation. And the question is, do you? If you do have a heart for the next generation, again, we want to get you involved in the lives of our kids and students. If you want to learn more about the opportunities here at the church, I just want you to text the number on the screen, next gen, just uh, text it in right now, and we will get you the information about that. Or you can walk out of here and you can uh, talk with representatives from Kids World and Student Ministries about the opportunity. We'd love to get you involved.